0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Valley Church. I pray that this message will fill you with the hope of the gospel and will help you follow Jesus today. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, visit valleychurchwv.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. And here we find Paul on a mission, but not in a place that he had been specifically sent. He was Um, He finds himself in Athens, and he's kind of just waiting for his friends to catch up. He's um, just kind of hanging out. Um, But there's something about Paul that I I think sometimes gets overlooked. Um, He gets kind of heated sometimes, and he's remembered for some of that. But he also had a great burden for the lost. Um, In Romans 9.3, it states that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his unsaved Jewish brothers and thought that if he could be cut off, he would be okay with it if it meant that they could be saved. Um, he, In First in Corinthians, he tells us that he became a servant to all that he might win some. To the weak, he became weak to save the weak. So he, he had an incredible burden for the lost, and that's what I want to kind of look at, because he, that burden, no matter where he was, was did not go off. He, it was always ha- he was always in the on position for that, so including in Athens. So today we're going to look at two steps that Paul took during his time in Athens to reach the lost, and there are two steps that I think that we could all learn from in our desire to spread the gospel um, in our neighborhoods, in our valley, and beyond. Um, I'm going to borrow a short prayer from King David before we get started to pray with me. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we read through the text this morning, we're going to see that Paul took two steps in his effort to reach the people of Athens uh, with the gospel in Acts 17. So if you're taking notes, you're going to find your first two answers pretty quickly. Paul considered the culture and he considered the call. So let's turn to Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, and look at how Paul first considered the culture. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. A truer statement has never been said. Ancient Greece, specifically Athens, was known for their insatiable search for wisdom and knowledge. Ancient Greece is generally known as the epicenter of Western thought, so much of what our culture and our own way of thinking is based on ancient Greece, like it or not. Um, so how can we say that? Why, why do we say that Greece was ancient Greece was the epicenter of Western thought? I'll give you a short set of examples. I do have a history degree, but I promise you I'm not going to bore you with too many of them. <laughs> so the father of mathematics, Archimedes, he literally gave us the number zero. <laughs> Pretty important. Um, Pythagoras. He gave us A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Um, That's an equation that has stood the test of time, 2,500 (laughs) years. Pretty awesome. We can't have an iPhone that lasts more than a couple years. Um, We have the father of medicine, um, Hippocrates, who gave us the Hippocratic Oath. We still follow, doctors still follow some version of that today. Um, And he was the first to say that illnesses had natural causes. They weren't actually all caused by angry gods and goddesses. Um, And I think he had the first school of medicine, too. I don't know what they practiced, but um, (laughs) medicine at that time. Um, Then there's the philosophers, the Greek philosophers. So we have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all the other ones. Um, Most of them came from this area. In my last example of the lasting impact of this culture, um, so, in an effort to reduce the bloody transitions of power, they came up with a novel idea that we still use today. Anybody know what that is? Democracy. <laughs> so, instead of when they wanted to have a new leader, they would—they had a democracy where they would vote. Instead of like grabbing a sword and killing the king and all of his descendants, they could just vote. So, we—we we are very thankful for that today. So these were people that like to sit around and think, and they came up with some pretty good things. Um, and they were pretty accomplished in all of these things. So Paul knew this when he arrived here. He, the wisdom of the Greeks was known worldwide. So Paul, no doubt, takes this into consideration when approaching them with the gospel. There's another important aspect of their culture that Paul is taking into consideration. They are also a culture that is seeking spiritual meaning. So this is evident to Paul when he's walking the streets of Athens and he sees all of the idols in the city. And this drives him to begin reasoning with anybody and everybody that would listen to him. So look back in verse 16 really quickly. It says, Paul's spirit is provoked. So what does that mean, provoked? It means he was angered. But pay attention, look further into that verse. What is he angry at? What is he provoked by? He's provoked by... The idols, not the people. So you got to know your enemy. When you're presenting the gospel, you have to know your enemy. The people of Athens, they were not his enemy. It was the idols. So thankfully, there were some people there in Athens that were curious enough in what Paul was saying that they bring him to the Areopagus. That's Mars Hill. So this is where a council of men would meet, and they would decide on affairs in the city regarding their religious and civic affairs. Um, So Paul is given an incredible opportunity, and you know Paul, he's going to take it and run with it. You know, they had called him a babbler, basically this crazy guy. Um, They said, you bring strange things to our ears. So, I mean, he could have just been like, you know, I'm not going to talk to you guys. But no, he was like, yeah, yeah, I do have strange things, and I'm excited to talk to you guys. So he, he took them up on that. So let's continue reading in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So not only are they wisdom seekers, they are also spiritual seekers. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. So when considering this culture, he's like a skilled surgeon. He's pinpointing the areas that are lacking and needing attention. So he's considering what's missing. Some commentators think that when he says, I notice that you guys are really religious, that he's like slamming them or something. But other commentators who I happen to agree with think that he's just simply pointing out the fact that they care about um, these gods that they feel are in control of their destinies. They are very religious. Um, So he's not like, he's just simply acknowledging and considering a part of their culture that's very important to them. He's not coming and slamming it. He's not swinging away at them. Um, he's considering their culture. About 500 years before Paul makes it there, the Parthenon was built. Um, I think I have a picture of it. <clears throat> the Parthenon was built, which was a temple to none other than Zeus's daughter, Athena. Um, Athena was not the only goddess, though. There were many gods and goddesses um, of Athens. And so fast forward about 500 years, and when Paul is walking the streets of Athens with some time to kill, no no doubt, marveling at all of the beauty in this city, he realizes, wow, there's a lot of idols here. And he realizes that the people of Athens need the gospel, just like everywhere he goes, they need it here too. And so, you know, at that point, Paul could have grabbed a piece of paper, a piece of cardboard put Turner Burn on his chest, and sat in the city center. But he didn't. He, d- he did not do that. He chose to engage the culture, and that made all of the difference. So when we are considering, considering a culture, we don't come in slamming it. Um, we come in loving the pieces of it that we know are a reflection of the fact that these people, these people in Athens, the people of this valley, we're created in the image of God. And so that's what we come in loving. And so when, when Paul is addressing them, he's like, I notice you're religious. I see this altar. He's saying like, ah, you're on the right path, kind of. Um, but And Paul's not compromising for their culture. He's considering it. There's a big difference there. When we consider the culture of this valley, we begin to see the gaping holes that only Christ can fill. And so... When we, when we consider a culture, it should lead to one thing. It should lead to compassion. So that's your next answer, answer there. Consideration leads to compassion. And that's what it led to for Paul. Um, <clears throat> this makes me think of Gladys Aylward, I think is how you say her last name. Um, anybody ever read her biography? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's called The Little Woman is one of them anyway. She was born, I have a picture of her too. She was born in 1902, and she was a British housemaid in her mid-20s when God laid it on her to go to China. She heard that there were people in China who had never even heard of the name of Jesus, and that kept her up at night, and she's like, I got to get there. Well, she kind of failed out of missionary school, um, so she had to make her own way there, and it was treacherous. Um, But she made it. A seemingly small step on her part when she arrived there, um, her way to consider the culture was she wanted to dress like them. She took on the traditional Chinese dress. Um, she wanted to be a part of their culture. That was her way of like stepping into their culture. She didn't come in slamming it. She didn't come in and say, and this is how you should dress. This is much more practical. No, she took on the dress of the Chinese people there. Um, and her tireless work resulted in many calling on the name of Jesus. She adopted several children um, throughout, and her her story is amazing. I would encourage you to read it. So Gladys Aylward, she considered the culture. Um, Can I give you an example of not considering the culture? Um, So is anybody in here a fan of church signs? You know, the ones that have, like, the little sayings on them? Like... (laughs) Um, God loves knee-mail, um, or like, um, fall leaves, but Jesus doesn't. And I'm just like, oh, when I see those signs, and I, I, I love all churches. Anybody who is calling on the name of Jesus, they are my brother and sister in Christ. But when I, when I see those signs, uh, just it literally creates like a physical <laughs> reaction in me. Um, but there was one sign, and those signs are fine whatever. Um, But there was one sign that I would pass by um, an unnamed church on my way to work, um, and their church is right in a turn, so you kind of have to slow when you're going by it. And so they always have something new every week. Well, there was one sign um, that said, don't make me come down there, God. My girls were with me in the car. They can tell you that this was, this I don't know, it did something to me. It provoked me, (laughs) it provoked my spirit within me like Paul. You know, at at first glance, this is just a sign, you know, it's kind of clever and, you know, you know, don't be bad because when God comes back, it's going to be bad, which judgment is coming, that's fair enough. Um, But, you know, something, I drive by it every day, I'm on my way to school, that's where I work, in a school. So what else crosses that path every single day, two times a day? What goes? School buses. Who's on those school buses? Children. Children who, you know, may have never been introduced to God before in their lives. They go by this sign. They see this church, and it says, don't make me come down there, God. First of all, that church put words into God's mouth. They should be scared. Um, Second of all, these children are reading that like, what does that produce in children? What emotion? Fear. Fear. That makes me really angry. Like stuff like that makes me really angry. Our state leads the nation in a lot of really terrible um, list. Um, we have tens of thousands of calls to CPS yearly. We have thousands of those cases that are being investigated. We have um, a rate that is three times the national average of babies that are removed from homes. Um, our kids are suffering. And to put that on a sign where children, hundreds of kids go by it twice a day, I hope that none of them read it. That's, that's all that I have to say. Um, because I felt like that was just a gross misrepresentation of a merciful and loving God who said when he was walking on earth, let the children come to me. So, anyway, I... That that's the sign of a father making an angry father making empty threats to a child, who they want to be living in fear. That's not my God. That's not the God of this Bible. Um, anyway, so I just would not want that to be a child's first exposure to who God is. Putting words into his mouth. Um, we had missionaries here a few weeks ago who talk about considering the culture. They knew that they live in an area where um, children basically have no food. And so what do they do? They don't just come in and preach the gospel. They do preach the gospel, but they also feed the children. They're considering the culture. So that's what, I hope you're understanding, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying considering the culture. So when we bring the gospel to people, we don't dismiss their way of life. We don't demean them and begin judging them. Um and accusing them, we take the time to understand their culture and be mindful of it, and that should break our hearts. Um, did Jesus consider the culture that he was entering? He sure did. He came in the likeness of our flesh, though sinless. He walked like us. He talked like us. Listen to his parables. He was speaking directly into their culture. He spoke about animals and agriculture. And I mean, he, he spoke directly to their culture. He knew exactly what they needed. Um, So before Paul ever considered a culture, before Gladys ever considered a culture, Jesus did it perfectly. Look back at verse 26. Back to the people of Athens. So in an attempt to cover all their bases, they have an altar to an unknown God because they knew in all of their efforts they were bound to miss a God here and there. Um, so their solution was to create an altar to an unknown God, the God that they may have somehow left out. That's an exhausting way to live. So Paul is not going to knock their effort at worship. He's going to lovingly offer them true worship. So I'm going to attempt to bring some clarity to like the ancient pagan religions, gods and goddesses, So part of being sent, which is the series that we're in right now, is having a burden for the people that are outside of the family of God. That includes people who are worshiping false gods. Um, So I just want to try to kind of show you what it's like to be caught in that trap of worshiping a false god. Has anybody in here ever been in a relationship um, where you felt like you were walking on eggshells? You were never quite sure what would make the other person angry, what's going to make that person happy. You try all these different things, and nothing seems to work. There, there's no like, rhyme or reason to the angry outburst. Um, there's, there's no way to like kind of like, when you wake up in the morning, is this going to make this person angry, or is it going to be this today? Um, so that's, you know, walking on eggshells becomes your best bet at survival. So... Is walking on eggshells possible? No, it is not. Is being in a relationship where you are consistently walking on eggshells, is that healthy? No. The people of Athens live their lives walking on religious eggshells. This altar will help. This festival will keep the gods happy. This sacrifice will give us health and wealth only to find that no blessing and no cursing was directly tied to anything that they were doing. So their answer was to just have more sacrifices. Let's build this altar to the unknown God because obviously we're missing something. So let's cover all of our bases. Let's, let's give a, an altar to this unknown God and surely, surely this will work. It didn't. You know, that that church sign, that's a threat from an angry God. And don't get me wrong, I know God gets angry. He gets angry at sin. Um, But don't make me come down there. That's that's a threat from an angry father for children who are walking on eggshells. So for all of the incredible advances that Athens, Greece is known for, even at that time, they were very religious with all their gods and goddesses. They never seemed capable of appeasing them never truly knowing what would bring them blessing or cursing. It was like a huge cosmic guessing game with really bad results to their minds, bodies, and souls. They were a culture walking on eggshells, seeking to appease any and every god and goddess with rituals and festivals and sacrifices, and it was exhausting. It only took Paul a few minutes to notice it as he's walking through there. His heart was immediately burdened for them. He sought to offer them rest. He sought to make the unknown known. So it was bad enough that they were walking on religious eggshells. They were walking on religious eggshells for gods that didn't even exist. So that's like those kids that would see that sign. They're starting to walk on eggshells for a god that doesn't exist. that should should keep you up at night. It kept Paul up at night. It should keep us up at night. We do not worship, praise Jesus, an unknown God. We have been given a Bible, an incredibly gracious thing that has been given to us so that we don't have to wonder what pleases God or even what angers God. We don't have to wonder. We know. As believers, we don't have to walk around on eggshells wondering if God will have a sudden, angry outburst against us. Paul knew that these people were seeking wisdom and meaning, but it had been a history of seeking human wisdom and meaning. So Paul knew that they needed true wisdom and meaning. They needed the wisdom of God. So now begins Paul's second step. So he has considered their culture, and with that information, he's now going to consider the call. He's going to consider, how, how am I going to deliver the gospel to these people that value wisdom and knowledge, and they value their gods and goddesses? How am I going to do this? This is what he does. Let's look in, back in verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, remember the altar to the unknown God, this I proclaim to you. So in that moment, he had their interest because they're, they're like, wait, what? He knows something we don't? the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. So leave it to Paul in his run-on sentences to give like Three incredible, huge truths of who God is in that moment. Like if they were any note takers there, they were already behind. So he, um, he, gives it, he gives a very high view of God, a very big view of God right off the bat. He knew that with this crowd, he was going to have to put out some like awe-inspiring things so that they would be drawn in and want to hear more. So what does he proclaim to them? Break it down really quick. Really quickly for you, the first truth that he proclaims, and it's a big one. Look at verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. So the first truth that he gives them, God is creator. It's a big one. During Paul's stroll through Athens, he quickly notices all of their created gods and goddesses. So imagine crafting your own God. It's kind of scary. And it made Paul's stomach churn. So he's going to flip that on its head and right off the bat, He's going to give them a heavy-hitting a heavy statement. So in their busyness to create their gods, he's going to say, Mm-mm, God created you. You didn't create him. He created everything, visible and invisible. So God is creator. What's the second truth he proclaims to them? God is independent and omnipresent. So what does it mean to say that God is independent and omnipresent or all-present? Just what Paul says at the end of verse 24. God does not live in temples made by man. Again, he's revealing to them just how big God is. So we have a church for many reasons. None of those reasons is so that God can live here. That's not why we have a church. Um, So it's, it's Paul's hope that with this knowledge that he's giving them, these fast facts that he's giving them, that it would begin to take a load off of their shoulders you know, all of these things that you've been doing to appease your gods and goddesses, it's not necessary. The third truth, God is all sufficient. Look at verse 25. He is not served by human hands. He literally needs nothing. There is nothing that we can give to him that he doesn't already have. Conversely, there's nothing that we have that he has not already given to us. So, He is once again trying to tell them, like, it's God who gives life and breath and everything. Think of that. That's what he wants them to think about. So Paul's sermon continues. So once he's um, described quickly who God is, he moves on to who we are, which is God's creation. So look in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him so first paul you know he tells us these huge truths about who god is he's creator he's all sufficient he's independent he's omnipresent And then in verse 26, he mentions God's sovereignty or God's complete control over everything. So he's literally hitting all of the major points of who God is in just a few sentences. Next in verse 27, he tells us that we were created by God and he even tells us our role in creation. What is that role? To seek God. Then Paul throws a curveball here at his next section. He points out that while we do need to seek God, He's actually not that far off. And he points out that even their own poets already know this. So look at um, the end of verse 27. So you need to seek God, yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. So they're like, wait, what? For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So that which these, these people are saying is unknown is actually known. He's not far off. He's right here. Our entire being is wrapped up in him. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. God's care for us is is so specifically and carefully and graciously meets every single need of mankind. Nothing is outside of his care and attention. Let's continue in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. So, in the times just before Christ's birth, human wisdom and knowledge had flourished more than any other time. But in the things of God, true wisdom, they were ignorant. And God showed, at that time before Christ, God showed patience and forbearance. But now, at this point, when Paul is there, Christ had come. So the gospel had been made available as going out to the Gentile world. At the end of verse 30. But now, he had overlooked those times of ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So during Paul's sermon, he told us who God is, and he told us who we are, and he told us what our response should be, repent and believe. It's the most concise sermon Paul could have ever preached on short notice. He tells the people, this is who God is, This is who you are, and this is what you need to do. It's perfect. Perfect. Notice the word that he uses at the end of verse 30. Commands. God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. There's an urgency in Paul's words. Why? Because judgment is coming. Paul had just said that God is near, but how do we get to God? through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So God may be near, but we're not at peace with him until we repent and believe. So when we repent and believe, you know, what happens? Well, we're then at peace with God. So as a slave to sin, the Bible tells us that we are at war with God. And we're near to him because all life is sustained by him, but at the same time, we're eternally separated from him. But... When we repent and believe, we become a slave to righteousness. And not only are we near him, his Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We become his temple. We are now his temple. Paul knows what their question will be and answers it for them. They're going to say, how can we trust this? So he goes ahead and he answers it for them. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. So in effect, Paul is saying, Jesus lived, died, was resurrected, ascended, that's our proof that what God says will happen is going to, in fact, happen. Verse 32. This is the last section of this scripture. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here we have the response to Paul's call. And there's three types. And this is what we can all expect any time we put the gospel message out there. So the first response, some mocked. They were not impressed. You have this with every crowd, and they'll hear what you have to say up until a certain point. Um and then you lose them. At some point, people will be offended by some detail or specific truth of the gospel. Maybe it's creation, it's the resurrection for these people. Other people, it might be the subject of suffering. At some point, the gospel goes against their intellectual sensitivities, and they're out. So these people mocked. The second response was, some were curious. They had heard enough to make them want to hear more. This response shouldn't surprise us either. Um, It was their curiosity that had given Paul this opportunity in the first place. So um, I have no doubt that he stuck around, and I think he does come back later in a few chapters, um, not specifically to Athens, but back in Greece. And I'm sure that he further unpacks these truths for these curious people because he wanted nothing more than to bring them relief from walking on religious eggshells. Then we have the third response. Some believed. Praise God. Paul welcomed new brothers and at least one sister that we know of to the family of God in that moment. Um, And I don't think Paul would have been disappointed at all in that seemingly small response. Um, Intellectual pride is a real thing, Um, and I think that he had himself been um, a slave to that before his conversion, so I don't think that he would have been disappointed at all in the response that he got. The Greeks sought wisdom and meaning, and so Paul sought to bring them the highest, most ultimate form of wisdom, the wisdom of God found in the life of Jesus Christ. The central mission of Valley Church is to seek, serve, and send. For some of us here, we might be sent off to far off lands. Um, We might need to get our passport and get a little dirty. Um, But others of us, um, did you know that we're sent out each Sunday? Actually, each morning that you wake up with breath in your lungs, you are sent out, um, and you know, nothing flashy, no passport needed, but you might just find yourself on your own Mars Hill, and you know, you might have like 30 seconds to give the best sermon you ever thought you could give, and it's really as simple as saying, this is who God is, he's holy, this is who you are, not holy, and you are separate without the life and death of Jesus Christ. So, mm, three things. That's what Paul did. He had a short amount of time, and he gave it to them. We can do the same thing. Um, <clears throat> something I, I, I work with middle school students. Um, something I, I find, myself t- find myself telling kids um, a lot is, know your audience. Um, did you know that middle school boy humor is different from middle school girl humor, (laughs) Um, I get boys in my office that get in trouble because of something they've said either to a group of girls or in front of a group of girls, a sound that they've made, something that they thought was funny, but girls uh, standing around thought it was either embarrassing or offensive or hurtful. Got to know your audience. It's the same for us. You have to know your audience. You have to know the culture that you're speaking to. You have to, to really see people. And that's, that's, I mean, the Holy Spirit will, will give that to you. When you're with a group of people, God, show me. Show me the needs of this people and, and, and help me meet those needs. Help me speak into that. Don't let me be dismissive or judgmental of this culture. Let me see it Let me see that need and he will show you. And you know, I we have to be we have to be considerate of people's needs. We have to be compassionate um, and then we have to consider our call. Paul came alongside them, you know, like I said, he could have put on that sign, turn or burn, and that would have been it. But no, he decided to come alongside them and say, God is your creator and He loves you, and He wants you to repent and believe because judgment's coming, and I care enough about you, even though I barely know you, to show you the way, the truth, and the life. And that that takes compassion, because it's very easy to get offended these days. It's very easy to get angry with people who are different from you. We can't be like that. We have to be different. We have to do better. We have to love better. Was Paul compromising? Was he being soft? I don't think so. I'd never say that to his face anyway. He wasn't. Consideration of another person or another culture or another way of life, that consideration is not weak. It does not have to lead to compromise or manipulating the gospel in any way. Consideration should lead to one thing, and that's compassion. I put um, Mark 634 on the bottom of your handout, Um, And let's look at this because it's so good and it sums up this entire message and is the perfect example of who we need to be. And so I'll end with this. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Did he stop with that compassion? Nope. Nope. And he began to teach them many things. These are the same people that a few verses or so later he's going to miraculously feed. So he's in touch with every single need of this group of people when he goes and speaks to them. So here's your last answer on your handout. Consideration leads to compassion. And compassion then leads to action. Look at this verse again. What did Jesus do? He saw... Then he had compassion, and then he began to teach them many things. This is how we are sent. You can't have one of these things without the other. You have to see people, like really, really see people, consider their culture and their needs. That will very naturally lead to compassion. But Jesus didn't stop there, and neither can we. That compassion has to lead to action. If not, you're just left with a pity party. And nobody wants to be a part of that. Um, You can't see people and have compassion on them and have pity and then do nothing. Be better if you hadn't seen them at all. So where are you on this path? Have you considered the people that you've been sent to? Like really seen their needs? Have you had compassion? Is your heart breaking for them? Are you like Paul and you have unceasing anguish in your heart for them? Finally, has that consideration and compassion led you to action? Has that compassion compelled you to share the good news? When Paul was in Athens, he saw the people there, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them, and he began to teach them many things. Do sheep without a shepherd understand church signs? No, <laughs> Do sheep without a shepherd, do they even understand when you go, watch out, there's a cliff? No, sheep without a shepherd don't understand that. They do not understand, look, there's a cliff. No, you have to come alongside them and show them. You have to have compassion on them and step out and go around them and show them the way. They don't follow signs. They don't, you know. I know they do follow commands pretty well, but I'm just saying, just for example's sake, if I said there was a cliff, I doubt that they would be like, oh, okay, but anyway, we have to we have to care enough when we see people, we have to see their condition and care enough to go and to do and to love. So think of the unbelievers in your life. Do you look at them as sheep without a shepherd? Do you have compassion on them? Do you feel an urgency to teach them about the things of God, the things of true life? The people in the valley, the, the lost, the hurting, the hopeless, they are sheep without a shepherd. And that should break your heart. Jesus had compassion and then he taught them the truth. We have to do the same thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it teaches us who you are and what you have called us to. Lord, it's truly a holy privilege to be your hands and feet on earth. Please help us to consider the culture around us and have compassion and a desire to to share your word and to be your vessel. Give us boldness and courage, but Lord, at the same time, please break our hearts for what breaks yours. Lord, we know that you are a father, as that song said earlier, that we can run to. Your arms are wide open and we can run to you. And we thank you so much for that compassion and that love that you have for us, Lord. Help us to see the lost around us who are sheep without a shepherd. Lord, give us eyes to see and help us to love and to do better. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Valley Church. If you are impacted by today's teaching or made a decision to follow Jesus, we would love to hear from you, pray for you, and walk with you. To connect with us, visit valleychurchwv.com. There you will find resources on following Jesus and information about how to partner with us here at Valley Church as we seek, serve, and send disciples of Christ.